Hi, everyone, and welcome to this What You Talking About Willis podcast. My name is Henry Willis, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Politics here at Halebury College in Melbourne, Victoria. Thank you for joining us as we discuss all things international relations, making connections between current world events and the VCE Global Politics curriculum. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, the 5th of May, and welcome to another episode of What You're Talking About, Willis. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing China's use of political power, which is defined as the use of a state's ability to use its uh, internal and international political machinery, such as legislation, to exert influence over the actions of others. And so when it comes to Chinese political power, there's really one major body or institution that we need to look at, and that's the National People's Congress um, and the capacity of this parliamentary body to pass legislation, which can have a very influential impact on a number of key issues, particularly in relation to China's One China policy. And as we'll come to see in this particular podcast, uh, we'll look at how China uses the National People's Congress to um, legislatively control Hong Kong and bring Hong Kong more and more under the influence of the mainland. And so before we get into the specific uh, national security and election laws uh, in relation to Hong Kong, um, a brief overview on what the National People's Congress is and what it does. Um, The National People's Congress is the largest parliamentary body in the world. Uh, It has almost 3,000 members. It's about 2,920 something at this stage. It does fluctuate a little bit. And it's designed to portray a veneer of democracy in China. Certainly the Chinese Communist Party used the National People's uh, Congress as a symbol to promote um, the idea of unity. Um, They tried to publicly demonstrate how it represents all China's different ethnic groups, different genders, um, and it's a political tool. Um, It's very, very different to the kind of parliament or Congress that you might see in a functioning democracy, because as we know in America or Australia, the legislative branch of government is one of three major branches that also includes the executive and the judicial branch. And all of those branches play a key role in checking the power and influence of each other. And essentially, the legislative branches can only um, function under the rules of the constitution in those countries, and they are full of political diversity. And so, again, um, the legislative process in Australia or America is far more complex and far more difficult because there are Republicans and Democrats and Liberal MPs and Labor MPs uh, fighting and disputing over every single piece of legislation, which means that legislation often doesn't occur, um, doesn't get the votes. Um, It's a complex, bureaucratic, um, challenging process sometimes, but ultimately it's designed to promote, um, you know, checks and balances and, and establish and protect democracy. In contrast, the Chinese National People's Congress is none of those things. Um, It's often viewed as a rubber stamp parliament because the NPC has never overturned a proposed piece of legislation that has come down from the uh, Politburo, which is the, the real power in the Chinese society. And so that's why they call it a rubber stamp parliament, because it really, all it does is serve as a tool to try and legitimize the actions of the Chinese Communist Party and its leadership. And so that raises the question, why bother at all with this institution um, if it's essentially a case of the Communist Party and its leadership under Xi Jinping uh, making decisions and then implementing those decisions? It's about creating a sense of legitimacy 
of public voice. Um, and certainly there's this strong notion and idea that the MPC is an important tool to pacify discontent because if people feel like they have a voice in politics and that they can channel their frustrations and their ideas into voting and then representation, that that may serve to pacify the ethnic basis of discontent if they have a voice in their politics. Now, all that, that idea or logic is somewhat sound. Um, obviously, the MPC has no form of direct representation. Um, firstly, China is a single party state, and so there is only the Chinese Communist Party, which means that these institutions are not particularly diverse from a political point of view. Um, there's no real opposition, and that's why none of this legislation has ever been overturned. Um, and secondly, representation uh, only occurs in China at a very grassroots level. And so um, there may be, for example, hundreds of millions of votes cast in local you know, um, townships or, or local people's congresses. But the MPC draws its membership from um, several layers of, of government. Um, China is a very big country of 1.4 billion people. And so unlike Australia that has sort of local, state and federal levels of government, um, China has significant significantly more layers. But essentially, the MPC draws its constituents uh, from uh, the lower congresses at a local um, sort of provincial and, and township level. And so they're not directly represented. Um, you have to be overly patriotic to be a member of parliament in China. And so really, um, the MPC is somewhat of a, a rubber stamp parliament, a show uh, parliament designed to try and convince people that they have a say in China when they really don't. So the MPC is in no way democratic, but it pre presents a veneer of democracy. And as the chief legislative, the highest legislative body in China, it plays a crucial role in doing things like amending the constitution, um, passing national security laws. Um, they say it rep uh, elects the president, which is, you know, maybe symbolically true, but I'm pretty sure the president is um, empowered through the deep state and the key industrial, military and party elite that form the Chinese sort of power structure. Um, but it is a powerful institution nonetheless. And then so in relation to foreign policy and China's national interest objectives, um, this legislation can be quite important in terms of achieving China's core national interest objectives. Um, the recent examples that I have for you on your notes relate to two specific pieces of legislation. Uh, the first one occurred in June 2020 when delegates to the MPC passed new national security laws for Hong Kong. So these laws were passed in the aftermath of uh, long periods of protest and civil unrest that we saw in 2019 when Hong Kongers, particularly the youth of Hong Kong um, academics, um, rose up in opposition to the Legislative Council's attempts to um, create new laws that essentially um, empowered China um, over Hong Kong, which threatened the sort of one country, two systems model, which has been put in place for the last you know 20 odd years. And these new national security laws um, limit liberties such as freedom of speech, the free press and the right to peaceful protest in uh, Hong Kong. And these laws have had a really profound impact on both China's national security and their economic prosperity. Um, the other set of laws which came through in March this year were the um, 
laws uh, approving changes to Hong Kong's electoral process, um, and this passed by a margin of 2,895 votes, um, which just shows how how little opposition there is to legislation coming through the MPC. And uh, this uh, piece of legislation uh, implements very strict new patriotic administrative testing um, designed to ensure that anyone who stands for parliament in Hong Kong must be essentially loyal to the mainland. Um, it essentially bars pro-democracy um, uh, movements and individuals and critics of China from any kind of political representation in Hong Kong. Um, and it also does things like implement a new patriotic curriculum to teach children, um, which flows through all levels of Hong Kong's education system. So they have really attempted to stifle academic freedom by teaching very young children, high school children, even sort of uh, undergraduates at university, um, the importance of sort of loyalty to authority in the state. And so these laws have had a couple of really sort of significant impacts on China's uh, objectives. Firstly, they've barred all pro-democracy politicians from standing in 2020 Legislative Council elections in Hong Kong, which means that there's a, there are fewer voices in place to challenge China's rule over Hong Kong. Um, and all the public officials that did stand had to pass some very rigorous um, patriotic testing, um, which absolutely not only applies to legislators, but also judges and, and local governors. So um, really anyone in a position of power in Hong Kong now um, is essentially loyal to the Chinese government. Um, 50 democratic activists in Hong Kong have been charged since the implementation of these new laws, which again shows how they're stifling opposition to the mainland. Um, and also, um, not only that, but it also has resulted in very few public demonstrations because people are now scared. They're scared of what these new laws can do, um, what it means uh, for the people of Hong Kong. And essentially, this has led to the quote that, you know, the idea of one country, two systems essentially lies in ruins. So it's been a very effective in that regard. Um, it also has been quite beneficial for China's economic prosperity because China's uh, companies have um, felt that the increased stability as a result of these laws is beneficial to their investment opportunities and it really protects China's access to Hong Kong as well as to the open market. Roughly $10 trillion worth of uh, global cross-border investments occur in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is often viewed as sort of the gateway to do business in China. Um, people are drawn to Hong Kong because it is seen as a less sort of regulated and a more free system, um, which allows people to sort of benefit from the Chinese market without ha having to necessarily be tied up with the Chinese government. Um, and so certainly these laws help preserve Hong Kong as an international financial centre um, that operates out, outside the mainland's strict sort of capital controls. Um, and it offers Chinese firms access to some of the, the deepest pools of capital investment on earth. Um, so there's more favorable regulatory environment in Hong Kong. China now has protected and controlled that to ensure that it remains a part of the mainland. And as a result, Chinese companies will really benefit from that. So there's some real benefits here in terms of national security and economic prosperity. If we're doing the evaluation, though, we can then turn around and go, well, what's the what can we critique about this response or this political power? What's the issue? And certainly it has drawn some fairly widespread criticism from the international community. Um, certainly um, in opposition to the national security laws, Australia joined with the United Kingdom, America and Canada in condemning them. And 
Scott Morrison has said things like China's decision to impose the new national security law in Hong Kong lies in direct conflict with its international obligations. And so we have a decline in the regional relationship through the condemnation that has occurred because of this. Um, and it also potentially risks certain economic um, objectives as well, because there is a thought that um, greater Chinese control and influence o over Hong Kong may scare away foreign investors. Um, it certainly may lead to sort of a, a, an influx of, say, refugees from Hong Kong to other parts of the world. So there are those, um, particularly foreigners who often live in Hong Kong, who are sort of starting to move en masse as China sort of can, takes over control of the island. And so um, there are potential risks to China's um, economic prosperity in that situation. And also an interesting point that I would make is that what's happening in Hong Kong has implications for other parts of China's sort of national security agenda. And while China has been very successful at sort of uh, surrounding Hong Kong and immersing itself into Hong Kong, it has drastic implications for Taiwan, for example, who see themselves in a similar position as being sort of um, two separate systems, um, perhaps under the jurisdiction of one country. Um, but Taiwan will be looking at this event and going, this is absolutely not what we want to happen in our context. And so that may push Taiwan further away from China, which is why many people suggest there could be conflict between, say, China and Taiwan and perhaps their American allies, because um, by being sort of fairly assertive in sort of claiming Hong Kong, China sends a pretty loud message to its other regions, particularly Taiwan, that they might be next. And so there's a real concern there that this could escalate and result in conflict, which would be good for, for nobody um, and certainly not be good for anyone's national security or their economic prosperity. And so, yes, that's a nice little overview of China's use of political power. They legislate. It is symbolic, but that symbolism is very important, particularly when it comes to China's one China policy and the capacity it gives that state to um, influence others. So particularly in that Hong Kong example, it's been very successful at crushing dissent, removing pro-democracy voices from Hong Kong and ultimately solidifying their national security and economic prosperity in that particular part of the mainland. In contrast, it does have implications for China's regional relationships as people become more and more concerned about China's aggressive pursuits in these areas. Okay, hopefully that's helpful to you. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, tune into the next episode where we'll finish off Chinese power by having a look at aid as a foreign policy instrument. Have a great day, everyone.